check. Make them little money. This week on the Pizza Planner Show, we answer your money questions. And if the open to this show sounds familiar to you, you are either a regular listener to the show or it's deja vu. This week on the show, the questions we will answer will revolve around women in investing and a special topic to my heart. I read an article recently about, unfortunately, how the gender equity gap will grow in our country because of all of our realities in terms of uh, parenting and education and household duties, because we're all stuck at home during this work from home period because of the pandemic. So we're going to talk about how well-intentioned people and leaders of organizations can advocate for women to make sure that that gap does not grow, because I think we are all better off with equity in the workplace. Uh, joining me because Damian Dunn is on vacation, happens to be my partner in the workplace, Olivia Zur, better known as Oz. Oz, welcome to the program. Hi, Pete. No, it is a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. When people email us, ask Pete at PeteThePlanner.com, that is an email address that you happen to sort through. And Oz, let's be honest with the folks here, why I don't personally check that email inbox and you know the real truth here, and you are yeah. welcome to share it with us. Yeah. Well, first off, it's a bit crazy. Uh, second off, you know, people give honest feedback, and some people have feedback that Pete doesn't necessarily want to start his morning with every single day. So it's it's few and far in between, but it happens. So The strange side effect of printing your email address in USA Today on a weekly basis is that people will take the opportunity with the current level of vitriol in uh, our uh you know, atmosphere, and they will unleash it on me. And I don't need to start my day that way. So uh, by proxy, Olivia starts her day by reading all the people who dislike me. All right, Oz, you and I knew we were going to do a show mm-hmm. today. And so I said, hey, what do you want to talk about? And you brought up a really interesting topic that I want to spend some time on. So uh, hit it with us or hit, yeah. hit us with it, I should say. Yeah. So for background, I'm 24 and I'm a woman. So um, I have never invested in the stock market and I've always been wanting to. And so when I was kind of brainstorming things that people in their mid-20s might be um, either thinking about or something that's on their mind financially, I know that the stock market is probably something that lots of 20 year olds are like, hey, should I be in it? Should I not be in it? Regardless of the global pandemic, the recession, all that stuff, just thinking long term, is it wise for me to invest? And so I did some research on this. And obviously, women invest in the stock market less than men. And there's lots of, you know, things pointing to the fact that maybe it's because we're risk adverse. Maybe we just um, like to save more and know where our money is. But so I really wanted to talk with Pete today and figure out one, um, is there a better, you know, mechanism um, for people who are risk adverse to grow their money if they have that extra cash? Or really, is there you know, how, how do women know when to enter? What do we do? I was even talking with my mom about this earlier. And I know so many well-educated women who just don't know where to start and then they just don't do anything. Um, so that's kind of where we're at. I love this topic. And there's been a lot of academic research around this topic. And I believe the, the one that I, I tend to reference a lot, I believe it was from US, UCLA that says when women do invest, they tend to be better investors than men. And the reason why, sort of the qualitative reason why, Oz, is the same reason women don't invest in the first place. And it's this. 
when men, women typically don't know what to do, and this is, again, a qualitative analysis of this, they tend to not do anything. Mm -hmm. they, they don't just guess. And men, sort of the aggressive personality traits of, of men is when they don't know what to do, they just assume they know what to do. Right. And do it anyway, and oftentimes find themselves in, in, a, in a lurch because of that. So it's really strange that uh, women certainly don't invest as much as men, but it's that same reason why they don't as to what makes them really good right. investors. Yeah. I, I think we want all the answers first. I want to know if I'm going to put money in that I'm doing it correctly and I don't blindly make decisions. I mean, sometimes I make them too quickly, but I don't blindly make them. So, yeah. Now, I don't have the data to support this next assertion, but at least I admitted it. Uh, I would guess that men tend to gamble in terms of Vegas and online gambling and sports gambling more than when women gamble. Would mm -hmm. you would you agree with that assertion? I would assume so. Yes, I personally am not a gambler. Um, I watched a show last night that included a lot of sports betting and it caused me anxiety. I just was like, I don't know about this. And it's even legal now, you know, but it's still something that you probably won't see me in Las Vegas soon, people. That's all I have to say. <laughs> Yeah. And I would also say to that point, to the extreme with gambling, I would assume that most women actually uh, don't have a gambling problem, right? So if, if if you look at who has a gambling problem by gender, it's likely to be more men, not only because they tend to gamble more, but because of the personality traits of men in general. Anyway, so Oz, where I think this becomes interesting is how does a woman who has apprehension around investing. How does that woman get off the porch, so to speak, and and, and get to play, which is yeah. to get in the market? And I think traditionally, the investment advice industry has struggled with this question. And it's because men have tried to answer the question. Yes, yes. Right? I, I think you're absolutely right because it's we, we think differently. If I were to go to an investment advisor who's male, he would most likely want to put my assets in the stock market in the way that he would do it rather than the way that I maybe would do it. And so I think that um, that middle ground is what causes fear. Here's what I've learned in being in the financial industry for 20 years is that A, I don't have all the answers, but B, men don't have all the answers. However, it is a predominantly male industry, which means it is uh, important for people who understand that to encourage more women to be in the industry. And not only that, but Oz, I'll just tell you flat out, if you have apprehension about investing, you need a female investment advisor. That is the beginning of this solution. Because if I were to try to talk you in to getting in the market, I'm going to make my arguments based on things that I value as a male's view of the market. Absolutely. And if I happen to be a woman, then I might view the situation a little bit differently and I can say more meaningful things to you that will resonate that'll help with that particular situation. I can agree more. I think that's probably the key. It's just like, where do you find those women? You know, and then it's it, can you even ask for a woman? I, the rules behind that seem. You know, I, well, you know, here's the thing. Um, there's nothing, the, first of all, there is no rule. And, and second of all, even if there was, don't you think you deserve the best advice you can well, yeah. get? Even Everyone if, deserves the best advice they can get. That's I, no matter what it is, investments, 
um, purchasing real estate, you always want someone who's on your side. Yeah, and I would say this. So I in, in one of my columns that I write, I write for the Indianapolis Business Journal. Uh, and that column, when I write, it's a little different from my USA Today column. And the reason it's different is because the audience is different. Um, and any time I reference a financial advisor in that column, I always reference that that advisor is female. And the reason I do that is because I want to push the narrative that there are plenty of great financial advisors out there that also happen to be women. Now, Oz, you are in a committed relationship. You, you are doing well financially. You're very smart. Um, and, and I think a lot more women need to have their own financial advisors who are women or men, whatever you want. But I mm -hmm. think part of solving the problem at hand here is to look at gender solving some of the issues too. I agree. Let's get more women in the investment business and I'm going to go find myself an investment advisor and we're going to do it. Yeah, I love it. And I'll tell you, a lot of times in, in our industry, we celebrate like 40 under 40 in investing. Let's stop with that and let's feature more lists of great women and invest, uh, advisors, great diverse advisors in terms of, of uh, black advisors and uh, Latinx advisors. So coming up after the break, more on this topic. I'm Pete the Planner and this is the Pete the Planner Show. Show. Oh, it's just me. If you've listened to this show for the, how long has this show been on? 12 years. There were times when this was a solo show. It's just me talking to you. It was a very intimate relationship. And uh, we're back to that moment now. My co-host Damian Dunn is on vacation. My co-worker Olivia Zur joined us the last segment to talk about women and investing. She did a fantastic job. And I'll tell you, in this financial world that I happen to live in, and I'm no longer a financial advisor, I was a financial advisor, there are a number of weak spots, a number of growth opportunities within the financial workforce. And, and, and the first one, very honestly, is the, the lack of equity in terms of men and women in the financial industry. Uh, there is no reason to think that a woman financial advisor is any way uh, less superior than a male financial advisor. I mean, to take that approach would be ridiculous. Here's the here's the thing, though. We have been socially uh, uh, socialized, I should say, to just think that men are better investment advisors because that's the way it was. Uh, women didn't work in the industry. They had other jobs like marketing and this and that. But the reality is some of the best investment advisors I know are women. One of the best financial advisors in the world happens to be a friend of mine, and she has been recognized consistently as one of the best financial advisors in the world. She happens to also live in central Indiana where I live. Her name is Elaine Beadle. She has been recognized as one of the best financial plan planners in the country repeatedly. And oddly enough, not one of the best financial planners, the one best financial planner, her firm made just last week the top 100 investment advisory firms in the country on CNBC. So when you go to select your financial advisor and, and you want a different approach from all of the stereotypical advice you get, which often comes from men, why not kick the tires, so to speak, on a female financial advisor? There's nothing wrong with that. And by the way, 
if you happen to be a man, which every once in a while I'm accused of being, just generally with my stubbornness, you can have a female financial advisor too. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Because ultimately, aren't you trying to get a different perspective, a fresh perspective, some different way to look at a situation that needs objective advice from the outside than your own? You don't want your financial advisor necessarily to be an echo chamber within your own head. And I think a lot of times that's what happens. You hear people say, oh, financial advisors are a dime a dozen. How can you tell them apart? How do I get a good one or a bad one? I'll tell you this. If you look at it from a gender perspective, you'll look at it a little bit differently and you'll do yourself a service in doing so. Since we're talking gender today, um, I have to tell you, I read an article. It came out uh, in September, late September, and it's from the uh, Society of Human Resources Managers. I believe that's the acronym SHRM. I should really know that. I mean, we live in the world of Sherman. My organization, my coworkers currently are upset. Oh, look at this. Hold on a second. Oh, actually, I was about to react to Facebook Live on the radio, but that doesn't really help people on the radio because you can't see what's going on in Facebook Live as we record this live noon on Fridays. But you know what? I'll bring it in anyway, and I'll just read it. Uh, a regular uh, viewer of the Facebook live stream is a woman named Ann. She says, I'm about to be officially certified as an AFC, which for those that don't know is an accredited financial counselor. Uh, I've been strongly considering pursuing the CFP certification for those that don't know is the certified financial planner designation. These types of stories, conversations make it even more appealing. Uh, and thanks for weighing in. And I'll tell you, both you Ann, and everyone else listening, the majority vast majority of our advice team at your money line and hey money are women. Why? Because the operative vibe of our entire organization is empathy. And if we want to hire a group of people that tend to be more empathetic as they look at a financial situation, very frankly, women are the right place to look. That is their great advantage over men. Now, I don't want to get too deep into stereotypes, but we are having an honest, transparent, and arguably uncomfortable conversation. So I'm okay saying that. This article I found in on the SHRM website, it's at uh, SHRM.org, is entitled The Pandemic Imperils Working Mothers' Careers. As the nation's health and financial crises drag on, experts worry that the strides women have made in the workforce are being negated, pushing equity further out of reach. It's by a woman by the name of Teresa Agavino, wrote the article, and there's just some absolutely stunning, stunning statistics here that are worth considering. And when you read statistics like this, it's one thing to feel bad for people who are in this situation. It's a whole other thing to think, what can my role be in trying to solve this problem? And as a leader of an organization, I try to at least ask myself that question because I know that my current reality, especially the last six or seven months, isn't shared not only by everyone in the world, but more specifically, even within our small workforce. And a lot of times, gender has a lot to do with it. Consider some of these statistics. 60% of working parents have no outside help in caring for and educating their children. Okay, that's a big number. That is the majority. Now let's get into some gender dynamics around it. Parents now spend an additional 27 hours a week on household chores, childcare, and education, okay? An additional 27 hours 
of the uh, 168 hours that we all have to work with, there are 27 more hours that need to be reallocated from whatever they were going to into these new tasks. Women currently spend 15 more hours per week than men do on domestic labor. Close to half of respondents of this survey feel that their performance at work has decreased because of these added responsibilities. You know, we talk about equality, but the real conversation here is about equity. If people at home are not doing an equal share, and by the way, let's just be honest here, I'm not doing an equal share. I'm not. I try to, but I'm, but I'm not. If people aren't doing an equal share at home, how can they be expected to do an equal share at work when they have more hours dedicated to things that need to get done at home? You see, in our culture at work, people often talk about, well, you can have a flexible schedule. Just get it done when you get it done. At what point of those 15 additional hours being added to a person's workload at home, are they supposed to just stay up till 2 a.m.? Is, is that the, the current solution we're dealing with? And if you happen to be a, a single mother or a single father, for that matter, because the dynamics are the same at that point, how about the additional 27 hours? When are you supposed to get that work done? I think if nothing uh, else comes from this pandemic, and God, I hope a lot comes from this pandemic in a positive way, because we've had certainly a lot of the negative. I hope if nothing else, we can real reconsider what it means to have a healthy life-work balance. You know, we've talked on this show in the last few weeks, uh, even that you know we used to talk about it in terms of work-life balance. If nothing else, that dynamic has almost permanently shifted. We've got to look at this a little differently. This is about life-work balance. What's more important, work or life? Well, life's more important. And I think if you get like-minded people within an organization, you're going to have a more powerful organization. We're going to talk more about this after the break. And we actually do have a financial question as well today. But I want you to consider this. If a person can have four days of work instead of five, it's possible they're more productive in totality during those four door days than if they were forced to work five and take on those additional 27 hours of duties at home. So we'll touch on that after the break. Uh, also, we do have a 529 question, so I feel somewhat qualified to answer that. This is the Pete the Planner Show. I'm Pete the Planner. We're back on the Pete the Planner Show. A little different show for you this week. Damian Dunn, the co-host with well, most of the intelligence of this group, is on vacation this week. He will be back next week. After upstaging me with a move of fun that he will never live down, he'll tell you about it next week. Olivia Zur, my colleague, joined us in the first segment and asked a really good question, which have really has really uh, dictated the direction of the show here today. And that's like uh, young millennial, young millennial women, millennial women, um, statistically are not actively participating in the stock market to the level that that men of their same age are. And this has actually been an issue uh, for several generations. Um, but what we're seeing is this group of millennial women are as educated, if not more educated than their male peers. 
they are earning uh, as high as salaries um, as their male peers. In some instances, the, the pay gap still exists, but they are not taking the next step in terms of putting that money to work uh, in the form of investments in the stock market, uh, even with uh, real estate investing in those things as well. So then that turned into a conversation about gender in the workplace and how this pandemic has really set women back because of duties at home. And it's not that those those duties automatically go to women who are performing some of those tasks. It's that the women are stepping up and doing those duties. I think that's the nuance of this conversation. Women are potentially, uh, and, and, and people who study this, are potentially worried about women being set back in the workplace because the women are the ones who have stepped up at home. Have I tried to step at a home, a step up at home? Yeah, but you know, probably not to the level that my wife has stepped up with what we're all dealing with right now. Now, also consider this: there are, of course, people who do not have uh, the ability to work from home, so that adds additional complexities with sending their children to daycare, to school. And then dealing with the realities of this pandemic if they're a single working parent. So it creates a lot of challenges. All right. Listen, everybody. I got a uh, tweet this week from, uh, actually, if I think about it, friend of the show, Lindsay Hine. She's got a great podcast. Three podcasts, oddly enough. Uh, one on running um, and uh, one on parenting. And oddly enough, I can't remember what the third one's about. But she should only have one. No, she's great. She has three. The question was, should uh, each child in your household have their own savings account and have their own 529 account, which is their own college savings vehicle? And it opened up a little bit of a discussion online, which I thought was pretty interesting. And it's a rather common question. But the reason why the answer is one way as opposed to the other way, actually, is the most interesting part of it all. So uh, and I'm going to talk about the state of Indiana because I happen to live in the state of Indiana. And if I'm going to talk about 529 plans, I want to talk about Indiana's 529 plan, not because they compensate me to talk about their 529 plan, although they do in commercials, but because I just happen to understand it best. Okay. So in the state of Indiana, if you put $5,000 a year as a household, into a 529 plan or a series of 529 plans, but it's $5,000 in aggregate, you get $1,000 in the form of a state tax credit or a 20% state tax credit, depending on whatever you put on, but it caps at 5,000, okay? So what some parents do is they hear that there's a $5,000 cap and they say, well, I'll just put it all in one count. It'll be for Billy, he's the oldest, and Sally, she's the youngest. But you know what? It's for both of them. We just have one account because you only get the one tax credit. And so we'll just use it for Billy and then we'll split it off and Sally will get some of it too when she goes to school a couple of years later. So in theory, that kind of works, right? Because from a tax st credit standpoint, you've maxed out the tax credit. So from a tax standpoint, it just doesn't matter whether you have one or two accounts. However, from a practical standpoint, when you get to Billy getting to school and Sally going to school, it, it gets rather complex. And here's why. A, let's say Billy uh, isn't uh, going to go to a cheap school. You know, Billy goes to a, a private school that's very expensive, doesn't get a, little, a lot of scholarship money because he's terrible at soccer. 
And so in order to make the economics of the plan work, you draw a disproportionate amount of the funds from for the 529 for Billy's education. And because practically, here's what I know, when parents are making those tough financial decisions around college in the moment, when a kid gets into their dream school and they're fighting and scrapping to find any way they can possibly pay for it, what they often do, even if they've mentally allocated a portion of the money to another sibling, they will take a disproportionate amount of that funding and put it towards the first student going to school. So in turn, what I'm telling you is Sally gets the short end of the stick, right? Because Billy is going to require more of that money. And so then they spend it and they often say, well, we'll figure out what to do with Sally later. And they don't. And it just ends up not being fair to Sally. This is why I recommend, I absolutely recommend that every child has their own college savings plan. Yes, you can have one plan and use it for the whole family. I'm just telling you, if we're trying to be practical here, and as a parent, you try your best to be fair, even when you try to teach your kids that there's no such thing as fair, uh, you should have separate accounts. Not only that, but because you're better able to equalize them along the way. For instance, in our household, we have one child who's three years younger than the other child in our household. And so we can, we can do the math, which I enjoy doing in spreadsheets, as you might imagine, as to at what pace is this child on versus what pace is this child on in terms of trying to hit our college savings goals. Now, let's say this. Let's say you, you, you know, get to your first child and you don't end up using their whole 529 plan because they get a scholarship. Now, here's the interesting part. I have a, a sister who is three years older than me who went on a full ride scholarship to uh, as an athlete at a division one school. Obviously, you can see me. I needed all the financial assistance I could get because A, I wasn't going to get an academic scholarship. B, wasn't going to get an athletic scholarship. And C, there, there weren't any broadcasting scholarships. So uh, my parents had to end up spending more on my college education than my sister's, even though my sister was the firstborn, right? So it's very important to have separate accounts for that reason. Another reason, let's say you've got a family member or a friend who likes to give gifts to your kids. You know, that's still a thing. And maybe they want to give a cash gift or some sort of monetary gift. You can give them the gift code for the child's account and it has more meaning to it, right? If it's Sally's birthday, but they have to deposit a gift into a, an account that has Billy's name on it, it sort of takes away a little bit of the meaning and the uh, well-intentioned generosity of making a deposit in the kid's account. So yes, I like separate uh, 529 accounts. On top of that, let's go ahead and take a moment to talk about banking. I think your kids should have their own bank account. Now it is worth noting, I have some weird views on banking and I'll share them with you and I don't expect you to adopt them, but they're really weird. For instance, all my coworkers and close friends love to mock me because I still pay my mortgage in person at the bank every single month. Why? Because when I was a kid and my mom used to take me to the bank in Speedway, Indiana, it was my favorite thing to do because I loved just the dynamics of walking into a bank, 
making a deposit, making a withdrawal. It felt really tangible to me. And there's something about that relationship that I enjoy the physical dynamic of it. So I still go pay my mortgage. And it's so I can get this little yellow piece of paper that tells me my mortgage balance at the end of each month and based on what my payment was that month. So I, I, that's weird. I know. I know. Right. So I really like that. But it's also why I want your kid to have their own separate bank account so they can begin to have that relationship. They can know that money is in the bank for them. And they know if they make money at their lemonade stand, they could go down to the bank and deposit it. I think it just paints a really good picture, especially in a time in which most people's digital thoughts, digital thoughts, there you go. Monetary thoughts tend to be digital. Coming up after the break, the biggest waste of money of the week and current events. I'm Pete the Planner. This is the show. This week's biggest waste of money of the week, the Buam, right here on the Pete the Planner show is the Outlier 001 Ultra Suede Snap Tight Mask. Face coverings aren't going anywhere anytime soon. And companies have begun to develop the perfect one. Outlier may have hit the nail on the head with their 001. It says 001, but uh, in terms of reading copy, I don't know how to say that. So I'm just saying 001 like it's 007. 001 Ultra Suede Snap Tight Mask. The bandana style mask is lined with a super soft ultra suede on the inside for a comfortable surface on the skin, while an injected linen shell creates a breathable barrier on the exterior. Am I the only one that appreciates the phrase breathable barrier on the exterior? There's also an internal pocket for filters and a nose bridge to keep it in place. For quick attachment, a magnetic closure easily clicks together and its placement behind the neck allows for more ear-friendly wear. All right, so that's pretty intense. There's suede involved. There's several layers. It's bandana style. $75. That seems like a lot. I have two masks that I wear. I wear a Pacers mask. Go go uh, go blue and gold. A Pacers mask that I think was like six bucks. And I have a Paisley mask, which surprises no one, from Old Navy. I don't know how much it was. Probably five bucks. Right? $75 for a mask seems like an ex exorbitant amount. You know, on this show, we love to talk about the Robinhood website. Robinhood, of course, is... Day trading for people who uh, want to day trade. And so uh, I guess what you need to understand here is that Robinhood continues to stay in the news for really strange reasons. For instance, it took Soraya Bagheri a day to learn that 450 shares of Moderna had been liquidated in her Robinhood account and that $10,000 in withdrawals were pending. But after alerting the online brokerage, to what she believed was a theft in progress, she received a frustrating email. The firm wrote it. The firm wrote it would investigate and respond within a few weeks. Now all her money is gone. Begary is among five Robinhood customers who recounted similar experiences in Bloomberg News, saying that they've been left in limbo in recent weeks after someone sold their investments and withdrew funds because the wildly popular app has no emergency phone number. Okay, so you know, you know my feelings around Robinhood. 
I feel like it gamifies investing to a detriment. I feel like it takes people who should not invest. And no, not everyone should invest. If you don't have any financial stability, investing is a bad decision. And then so the novice hearing that will say, well, shouldn't you invest to get stability? No, you should have savings to create stability. And once you have a level of stability, uh, then maybe invest in a platform. And of course, you should always put money into your retirement plan at work. But to, to pick your investments on your own in the wild, wild west of online trading prior to having stability is a giant mistake. And Robinhood simply just doesn't care, in my opinion. It's my opinion. I'm not accusing them of anything other than they love the novice investor. And in this situation, the ability to talk, call and talk to a customer service person because you feel like someone's stolen your money and you're told that they will get back to you in weeks. Meanwhile, your money's gone and there's nothing you can do about it. That seems bad. That seems really bad. The SEC and FINRA have declined to comment on this case so far, but I think sooner rather than later, Robinhood is going to have to answer to the fact that if something goes wrong with their accounts, you can't actually talk to someone on the phone. I don't know why I'm about to say what I'm about to say. Why am I doing this? Damien is currently cringing. Here's the thing. Sometimes you need people to solve people's problems. Artificial intelligence, bots, all of those things don't solve people's problems. Why am I saying this? Well, it just happens to be one of my organization's biggest competitors just announced a large artificial intelligence component to financial advice that solves people's problems with a computer. Here's what I know. Money's not about math. <laughs> it's about behavior. It's about understanding really troubling dynamics of a situation, putting the puzzle together, making some chess moves, not checker moves, and then seeing it through with accountability. I'm telling you, that can't happen with artificial intelligence. The future of money isn't computers. It's relationships. And that's okay. Walmart divides Black Friday deals into three separate events that kick off online. Walmart said on Wednesday of this past week that it will have in-store Black Friday sales, but it's breaking them up into three different sales events. The big box retailer is taking safety precautions such as having employees distribute sanitized shopping carts and limiting the number of customers inside the store. Scott McCall, executive vice president and chief merchandising officer for Walmart U.S., said the company wants to deliver on low prices, convenience, and safety no matter how customers choose to shop. Again, I think you're going to start seeing more and more stores make decisions like that because of not only the practicality of not getting their stores flooded with people during a pandemic, but more importantly, they have to show that they're nimble enough to, to care about the concerns, the health concerns of other people. Now, if there was any story that hit the news this week that hit me in what was a very predictable way, but still a very upsetting way, it was the news that Social Security cost of living adjustment for 2021 will be 1.3%. Here's what this means. Every year, if you happen to receive Social Security income as a retiree, uh, you receive uh, what's called a COLA or a cost of living adjustment. That increase typically 
accounts for what's happening with inflation and the cost of living. And uh, as you might know, we're in a recession and a pandemic and a bunch of other things. The increase this year is 1.3%. The average cost of living adjustment since 2010 has been 1.4%. So it's slightly below that. It is in line with previous estimates from the Senior Citizens League of America. You know, it's hard to hear the word league without thinking of the Justice League. And I just wonder if the Justice League and the Senior Citizens League got into like an all-out Royal Rumble. I mean, you got people throwing walkers. It's getting pretty dangerous. I don't know. I'm not I'm not suggesting the government should have made the cost of living increase more than 1.3% because I really don't think they've got the financial wherewithal to pull that off. But that's good. That's going to be interesting. You know, we've kept the show rather upbeat today. In light of the fact that we're talking about some pretty tough topics. But I do want to paint a slightly uncomfortable picture to leave you all to think about for the next 168 hours. And that is this. The end of the year brings a certain season every year that we've all come to accept in some way, shape, or form, and that is that December also signifies layoff season. Not layaway, that's different, and that starts in November. Layoff season. That organizations try to hit their numbers, not by the amount of revenue they are receiving in December, but oftentimes by the number of expenses they're eliminating to hit their budget. Thus, they receive bonuses and they can stay employed. And one of the ways organizations do this is through the layoff. I think it's worth noting that there's a lot of well-intentioned businesses across our country who have done the best they could to keep their ship afloat during trying times. And so when layoff season comes around this year, it could have a completely different vibe to it. It could not only be them trying to hit their numbers, but it could also be throwing in the towel, understandably to some degree, on what was a superhuman effort to keep the ship afloat. And so what I worry about going into the next 10 weeks or so is when does that start happening and how does that affect the other dynamics of what's going on in the economy? And it's with that, I bid you adieu. I'm not saying that jokingly. I just, I think about it a lot. So, hey, I'm sending you good vibes. Good vibes are all that's in the budget. Thank God. Dame will be back next week. I'm Pete the Planner. This certainly was a show. <laughs>